Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Have you ever wondered what Paul meant by reaping coals upon somebody's head? Well, it has to do with blessing and how we live out our Christian life. You're listening to Bless Those Who Persecute You by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is, once again, from Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21. And if you haven't already memorized it, I ask that you all take your Bibles out. If you're a visitor with us or you've somehow forgotten, we're spending our whole summer on this one Bible passage, and we're challenging uh, the members of LaGrave and frequent attenders to try to memorize it. It's not an obligation, it's a challenge. And um, it, it, so in, when we read it, it's not just me reading the passage, we say it together. So if you're a visitor, take your Bibles out and we recite that together and you can follow it along and say it with us. This is already our seventh sermon on this one text. And I will say the first six sermons have been on just the first paragraph. Six sermons on five verses. If you had told me that I was going to be preaching six sermons on five verses, I would say that's a terrible idea. Uh, And yet we have done it, and I think it's been okay, although you are the judge of that. So let us hear these words. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Holy Spirit blowing in our midst, forming us into people that Christ intends us to be. Let us say together, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. So today our focus is on verse 14. It begins in verse 14 of the passage we just recited together, and that's bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And I wonder if you noticed as you were memorizing it or even as you're reciting it or as you're thinking about this passage, 
This is actually clearly a point in the passage where um, Romans 12 takes a little bit of a turn. Up till now, everything that we've been reading and reciting and memorizing has been, the, the instructions have been primarily about the life of the church and the way we relate to each other. So be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who have a need. Okay, it starts here with those first five verses. Doesn't mean it doesn't have implications out there, but it's been primarily about this. Verse 14, it starts to shift. Bless those who persecute you. And now, we're starting primarily to think about people out there, people who do not share our beliefs. And more to the point, not only do they not share our beliefs, but they are against us. They might be called our enemies, our persecutors. It's a really important topic. And it's a timely topic because there's a lot of churn, a lot of talk in the church right now about how should we be acting and talking to the cultural forces that are coming against the church and, I think, fairly increasingly coming against the church. How do we deal with them? A lot of people are in the mood to fight. That's a voice you hear a lot lately. You've got to fight. Those people out there who are different than us, who are coming against us, they're dangerous, and we've got to be ready to fight them. We got to think like we're in combat here. And there's all kinds of places where you hear that. Um, out in our society, that's very much the mood of things, and it's formed in us in different ways. One of the places where you hear that kind of rhetoric all the time, of course, and I promise you I'm, being, I'm going to be nonpartisan here, is in the political arena, right? In the political arena, that's the way people talk. Political ads, for instance, have a certain form that they follow. And you've heard a lot of those, you're only going to hear more. And the form goes roughly like this. They say, did you know that, and then insert one party's name here, has a radical agenda, and if they are allowed to take power, they will ruin our country. They must be stopped. We must come against them. So please give to, name of other political party here, so that we can stop their radical agenda. That's a form of message that you hear from both sides of the aisle. That's a form of message that we are hearing all the time. And when we hear it that way, it shapes us. It shapes our psyche. shapes the way we engage in the world. The message is pretty clear. Those people out there are dangerous and we have to fight them. And if sometimes you've got to fight dirty... Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. I read and heard about a, a political candidate this week. I won't share anything about what party this individual is from. But this individual shared that everywhere this individual goes, they are followed with, by three people who are called video trackers. Video trackers. And all these video trackers do is that they follow this candidate around in every public place this person goes and they film absolutely everything that this candidate does. Absolutely everything from three different angles. Why do they do this? Well, these video trackers are members of the opposite party. And what they're trying to do is find one sentence where the candidate misspeaks. One situation where the candidate looks a little awkward. 
one little thing where they make a gaffe and then they will clip it and they will frame this person in light of that clip. Their goal is to make this candidate look like their worst possible sentence. To have them framed in terms of their worst possible action. Now, I don't know what you think of that. I think that's awful. I think that's absolutely graceless. But that's where we're at. Both parties are doing this. I did more reading on it this week. That is where we are at. Fight your enemy and fight dirty if you need to. And this attitude has crept into the church. There's a lot of talk in the church about how we should deal with outsiders, how we should deal with the culture that comes against us. And increasingly, there are voices which say, this is no time for gentleness and this is no time for, for kindness. Things are terrible and we got to fight and we got to be forceful. A winsome approach is not going to work in this world. We got to take on new ways. What might Paul have to say to that? Or more to the point, how does that attitude fit with what we hear the Holy Spirit forming us in this passage? Now, Paul, of course, is no stranger to enemies. Paul knew all about opponents who were against him. In fact, what Paul personally experienced in the way of opposition goes far beyond anything that any of us have ever experienced. When, by the time Paul wrote Romans, so when he wrote these instructions and when the Holy Spirit spoke through him in these instructions... Paul had been attacked multiple times by mobs. He'd had riots come against him. He'd been beaten. He'd almost stoned to death. He'd been flogged. He'd been thrown in jail multiple times. And most scholars think that when he wrote Romans, he was on his way to Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, in spite of the advice of many who said, don't go to Jerusalem because they will try to kill you there, he goes anyway. And in fact, when he gets to Jerusalem, they do try to kill him. So Paul faced terrible persecution, enemies, opponents. Paul knew all about those things. And how had the Holy Spirit trained Paul to deal with those enemies? What is the attitude that the Spirit put in Paul as he faced these people who beat him and who wished his death? You know. It's really clear in our passage. You've been reciting it all summer. And it's so clear because Paul says it not once but twice. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He says in verse 14. And then in case you missed it, he brings it up again in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Now, three things here. First, I think, and most commentators agree with me, that Paul is probably quoting Jesus here, right? Paul intends to quote Jesus here. I know he doesn't say, as Jesus said, but commentators think he's quoting Jesus. And more precisely, he's quoting exactly that passage that Christy read a little bit earlier from the Sermon on the Mount, the one where it says, if someone forces you to go one mile with them, go with them too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, he didn't say... As Jesus said, most commentators think that's because this instruction was so well known, he didn't have to say it. Everybody knew that Jesus said these things. Second, note that in these words, the Holy Spirit is calling for a lot more than tolerance from us. Right? It's not just putting up with your enemy, it is blessing your enemy. 
That's hard because biblically speaking, blessing is, is, is wishing and praying for positive favor, praying for the flourishing of your enemy, that the Lord will lift up his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. It is praying for the positive regard of the Lord towards your enemy. That's hard. And finally, third thing, when the Spirit calls me and calls you and calls us to bless those who persecute us, that is not the same thing as simply rolling over. That is not the same thing as being passive and getting stomped on. In fact, blessing those who persecute you and loving your enemies is a way to fight evil. It is a way to overcome the powers of darkness in the terms of our passage. It is a way to overcome evil with good. Which brings us at last to the burning coals. From the moment that we started this series and we've recited it, I've had so many people say to me, I really like this passage, but please, pastor, what is with the burning coals? One minute we're feeding and, and give our enemy and giving him something to drink, and the next minute, burning coals? Is this some sort of terrible bait and switch? Is Paul calling us to invite our enemy over to dinner and then spring something on him? Here's a glass of lemonade, and while we're at it, here up some burning coals. <laughs> no, that's not what Paul is saying. Verse 20 is a quote from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 25 verses 20 and 21, and in both Proverbs and in here, the burning coals is a metaphor for a state of mind. When you heap burning coals upon your enemy's head, you create a state of mind in your enemy that burns. So what kind of state of mind is that? Well, think about shame. How do you feel? What are metaphors that we like to associate with shame? When you say, when you say you're ashamed, you say you burn with shame, right? Right? Your face burns, your head burns when you are ashamed. And not only that, sometimes when we obsess on something, when we can't stop thinking about something, think about it over and over and it spins in our mind, we say that, that thing burns in my mind. So heaping burning coals upon your enemy's head is to make him feel shame for the thing that he has done and to make him think over and over again about the kindness that you showed in return. Those are the two states of mind that we do when we heap burning coals upon our enemy's head. So blessing your enemy and showing kindness to your enemy is not a surrender. It's like a grace-tipped arrow that you aim at his or her malice with the goal of changing them. That's exactly what Jesus is instructing us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says those words about if someone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two. I've talked about this before, but let me remind you because it's perfect for this sermon. Back in Roman times, in Jesus' times, a Roman soldier had the right to force any person to walk and carry his bag for one mile. He could stop you in the street, whatever you were doing, and say, carry my sack and you got to do it for one mile. That was the law. Why is Jesus saying then, don't just do it for one mile, do it for two? How does that heat burning coals on the soldier's head? Well, it goes like this. If you do that for the first mile that you're walking and carrying the soldier's pack, the soldier is swaggering. Right? The soldier feels like, I'm in charge here. This is the law. This guy's got to obey me. I'm the boss. 
In the second mile, when you say, oh, no, I, you know what? I'll take this another mile. I don't mind. Soldier's not in charge anymore. Now the soldier's starting to think, why is this person doing that? Who are these Christians that they do things like that? It's spinning in his mind. The burning coals are starting to heat up in his head, and the grace of God is the thing in charge for the second mile. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. It's not surrender. It's a strategy for bringing the grace of God to people's hearts. Like most of you, I've had very little direct persecution in my life. I mean, I've had, I can look around like the rest of you and see all kinds of forces in culture that are pushing against Christianity, but in terms of that being personal, someone coming against me personally, that has happened to me very seldom. As I was writing this sermon, of course, I started thinking about when were the times where I was actually had this happen to me? And one of the times was 30 years ago at a Denny's on I-96 and Plainfield. I think many of you know which Denny's I'm talking about. When I was in seminary, I worked at East Leonard Christian Reformed Church and I did Bible studies. And a bunch of guys would gather really early in the morning and we'd study the Bible. So we were in the middle of our study of Hebrews and we we're sitting around our table and talking about the Bible. And in the booth next to us, or just across from us, were these two relatively young guys, maybe 20. And in the middle of our, middle of our Bible study, they started talking to each other, but really talking to us. So they're facing each other, but really talking to us and saying really loudly, Jesus isn't real. The Bible's a fake. Christianity is for losers. It's all a bunch of nonsense. So we're trying to do our Bible study, and these guys are saying this stuff, and it went on for like 30 seconds. And at first I was, I was shocked, right? Like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then I was mad, and I sort of shot him a look. But we just, you know, we just kept going on our Bible study like nothing was going on, and we finished. And as I walked out, I scowled at them. And the rest of the day, and probably a few days afterwards, I turned over my head ways in which, I sh things I should have said, things I should have done to just really stick it to them, some way I could have zinged them. But as I thought about Jesus' words this week, and this passage, and what he's calling us to, and I realized, finally, for the first time, it became clear to me what I should have done. And I wonder if you can think of what I should have done. I should have paid their bill. I should have left a big tip. I should have wrote in the bottom, hey guys, have a great day. And I should have done it without any sense of smugness and any sense of superiority. That's what I feel like Jesus was calling me to do. It's not what I did. I wish I could do it again. I am convinced that this burning coal thing that Paul calls us to here is so important to him because it's personal to him. I think Paul knows what it feels like to have burning coals heaped upon his head, that he has felt this and he knows its power. Why do I say this? Think about the first time in Scripture we meet Paul. When's the first time in Scripture we meet Paul? At the stoning of Stephen, right? And at that point, he is an enemy. He's an enemy of Stephen and an enemy of the gospel. 
He approves of the fact that after Stephen has proclaimed the gospel, all these people stone him to death. Paul likes this. For all we know, Paul threw some of the stones. Do you remember what Stephen says right before he dies? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prays for his enemies. He asks for God's favor on these enemies. And I think that Paul never forgot that, that those burning coals of what Stephen said stuck in his head. Why do I think that? Well, where do we read about what Stephen said in the book of Acts? Who wrote Acts? Luke. How did Luke know what Stephen said? Luke wasn't there. Luke knew from Paul because they traveled together as missionaries. That's how Luke knew it because Paul told him because Paul never forgot because those burning coals were in his head. Don't believe me? Check out 2 Timothy 4.16. That's a passage where this time it's Paul who is dying. That's the passage where he says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. He's in a Roman prison. He thinks he's dying. And a lot of scholars think, yeah, that's probably right. It's probably just before he died. And in his cell, he mentioned some people who have hurt him. A guy named Alexander the metal worker who's done him great harm and some people who he thought were his friends who never showed up at his trial and never came to help him. You know what Paul said about those people? He quotes Stephen almost verbatim. May it not be held against him, he says. Of course, all these men learned their words from Jesus. Jesus, who was surrounded by enemies on his cross, the very ones who spit on him, who cursed him, who called for his crucifixion and torture, and who looked at them all and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So you see this blessing your enemies thing, this is not some sort of peripheral instruction. This is not some sort of option out there at the edge of the Christian life for people who are holy heroes. This flows right straight from the cross. And frankly, it's the dynamic that saved us. While we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. And now by his Holy Spirit, he is placing this grace-filled life in me and in you and in all of us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord God, were the whole realm of nature ours, that would be a present far too small. Thank you for your amazing divine love that you planted a cross, a place of redeeming love in the middle of a world that's full of hate and anger and confusion. And Lord, we're still confused a lot and we get angry. But thank you we can always, that we can always turn to your cross and know that there is a grace and a justice, and a judgment, and a righteousness that will change this world and do what we cannot do. Lord, we give you the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.